0: CHAPTER THIRTEEN OF THE GOLD HUNTERS BY J. D. BORTHWICK. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY SUE ANDERSON. CHAPTER THIRTEEN. ON THE WAY TO Downeyville, FROM FOSTER'S BAR I SET OUT FOR Downeyville. ON LEAVING THE RIVER I HAD AS USUAL A LONG HILL TO CLIMB, BUT ONCE ON THE TOP THE TRAIL FOLLOWED THE BACKBONE OF THE RIDGE, and was comparatively easy to travel. It was the main pack trail to Downeyville and being traveled by all the trains of pack mules was nearly ankle-deep in dust. The soil of the California mountains is generally very red and sterile and has the property of being easily converted into exceedingly fine dust as red as brick dust or into equally fine mud according to the season of the year at the end of a day's journey in summer the color of a man's face is hardly discernible through the thick coating of dust which makes him look more like a red indian than a white man the scenery was very beautiful the pine trees were not too numerous to interrupt the view and the ridge was occasionally so narrow that on either hand looking over the tops of the trees down below there was a vast panorama of pine-clad mountains on one side gradually diminishing till at a distance of forty or fifty miles they merged imperceptibly into the plains which with the hazy heated atmosphere upon them looked like a calm ocean while on the other side one mountain ridge appeared above another more barren as they became more lofty till at last they faded away into a few, hardly discernible, snowy peaks. It was a pleasing change when sometimes a break occurred in the ridge, and the trail dipped into a dark, shady hollow, and, winding its way through the dense mass of underwood, crossed a little stream of water, and, leading up the opposite bank, gained once more the open ground on the summit, I traveled about 15 miles without meeting anyone, and arrived at Slate Range House, a solitary cabin, so called from being situated at the spot where one begins to descend to Slate Range, a place where the banks of the river are composed of huge masses of slate. I dined here, and shortly afterwards overtook a little Englishman, whose English accent sounded very refreshing he had been in the country since before the existence of gold was discovered but from his own account he did not seem to have profited much in his gold hunting exploits from having had such a good start i stopped all night at oak valley a small camp consisting of three cabins and a hotel and in the morning i resumed my journey in company with two miners who had a pack-horse loaded with their mining tools their pots and pans their blankets and all the rest of it the horse however did not seem to approve of the arrangement for after having gone about a couple of miles he wheeled around and set off back again through the woods as hard as he could split the pots and pans banging against his ribs and making a fearful clatter My companions started in chase of their goods and chattels, but thinking the pair of them quite a match for the old horse, and not caring how the race turned out, I left them to settle it among themselves and went on my way. I met several trains of pack-mules, the jingling of the bell on the bell-horse, and the shouts of the Mexican muleteers, generally announcing their approach before they came in sight they were returning to Marysville, and as they have no cargo to bring down from the mines, the mules were jogging along very cheerily. When loaded, they relieved their feelings by grunting and groaning at every step. The next place I came to was a ranch called the Nigger Tent. It was originally a small tent, kept by an enterprising nigger for the accommodation of travelers but as his fortunes prospered he had built a very comfortable cabin which however retained the name of the old establishment in the afternoon i arrived at the place where the trail leaves the summit of the range and commences to wind down the steep face of the mountain to downyville there was a ranch and a spring of deliciously cold water which was very acceptable as the last ten miles of my journey had been uphill nearly all the way and the heat was intense but not a drop of water was to be found on the road i overtook two or three miners on their way to Downeyville and went on in company with them as we descended we got an occasional view between the pine trees of the little town far down below us so completely surrounded by mountains that it seemed to be at the bottom of an immense hole in the ground i had heard so much of Downeyville that on reaching the foot of the mountain i was rather disappointed at first to find it apparently so small a place but i very soon discovered that there was a great deal compressed into a small compass there was only one street in the town which was three or four hundred yards long indeed the mountain at whose base it stood was so steep that there was not room for more than one street between it and the river this was the depot however for the supplies of a very large mining population all the miners within eight or ten miles depended on Downeyville for their provisions and the street was consequently always a scene of bustle and activity being crowded with trains of pack mules and their mexican drivers the houses were nearly all of wood many of them well finished two-story houses with columns and verandas in front the most prominent places in the town were of course the gambling saloons fitted up in the usual style of showy extravagance with the exception of the mirrors for as everything had to be brought seventy or eighty miles over the mountains on the backs of mules very large mirrors were a luxury hardly attainable an extra number of smaller ones however made up for the deficiency there were several very good hotels and two or three french restaurants the other houses in the town were nearly all stores the mining population living in tents and cabins all up and down the river i put up at a french house which was kept in very good style by a pretty little frenchwoman and had quite the air of being a civilized place i was accommodated with half of a bedroom in which there was hardly room to turn round between the two beds but i was so accustomed to rolling myself in my blankets and sleeping on the ground or on the rocks or at best being stowed away on a shelf with twenty or thirty other men in a large room that it seemed to me most luxurious quarters the salle à manger was underneath me and as the floor was very thin i had the full benefit of all the conversation of those who indulged in late suppers while next door was a ten-pin alley in which they were banging away at the pins all night long but such trifles did not much disturb my slumbers there was no lack of public amusements in the town the same company which i had heard in nevada were performing in a very comfortable little theater not a very highly decorated house but laid out in the orthodox fashion with boxes pit and gallery and a company of american glee singers who had been concertizing with great success in the various mining towns were giving concerts in a large room devoted to such purposes their selection of songs was of a decidedly national character and a lady one of their party had won the hearts of all the miners by singing very sweetly a number of old familiar ballads which touched the feelings of the expatriated gold-hunters i was present at their concert one night when at the close of the performance a rough old miner stood up on his seat in the middle of the room and after a few preliminary coughs delivered himself of a very elaborate speech in which on behalf of the miners of Downeyville, he begged to express to the lady their great admiration of her vocal talents, and in token thereof, begged her acceptance of a purse containing five hundred dollars worth of gold specimens. Compliments of this sort, which the Scotch would call wise-like, and which the fair cantatrice no doubt valued as highly as showers of the most exquisite bouquets, had been paid to her in most of the towns she had visited in the mines. Some enthusiastic miners had even thrown specimens to her on the stage. Downeyville is situated at what is called the Forks of the Yuba River, and the town itself was frequently spoken of as the Forks in that part of the country. It may be necessary to explain that, in talking of the forks of a river in California, one is always supposed to be going up the river, the forks are its tributaries. The main rivers received their names, which they still retain, from the Spaniards and Indians. And the first gold-hunting pioneers in exploring a river when they came to a tributary called one branch the North and the other the South Fork. When one of these again received a tributary, it either continued to be the North or South Fork or became the Middle Fork as the case might be. If a river was never to have more than two tributaries, this would do very well. But the river above Downeyville kept on forking about every half a mile, and the branches were all named on the same principle, so that there were half a dozen north, middle and south forks. The diggings at Downeyville were very extensive. For many miles above it on each fork, there were numbers of miners working in the bed and the banks of the river the mountains are very precipitous and the only communication was by a narrow trail which had been trodden into the hillside and crossed from one side of the river to the other as either happened to be more practicable sometimes following the rocky bed of the river itself and occasionally rising over high steep bluffs where it required a steady head and a sure foot to get along in safety. One spot in particular was enough to try the nerve of anyone but a chamois hunter. It was a high bluff, almost perpendicular, round which the river made a sweep, and the only possible way of passing it was by a trail about eighty feet above the river. The trail hardly deserved the name it was merely a succession of footsteps sometimes a few inches of a projecting rock or a root two men could pass each other with difficulty and only at certain places by holding on to each other and from the trail to the river all was clear and smooth not a tree or a bush to save one if he happened to miss his footing At one spot there was an indentation in the precipice, where the rock was quite perpendicular. To get over this difficulty, a young pine tree was laid across by way of a bridge. It was only four or five inches in diameter, and lay nearly a couple of feet outside of the rock. In passing, one only rested one foot on the tree, and with the other took advantage of the inequalities in the face of the rock while looking down to see where to put one's feet one saw far below between his outstretched legs the most uninviting jagged rocks strongly suggestive of sudden death the miners had given this place the name of cape horn those who were camped on the river above it were so used to it that they passed along with a hop step and a jump though carrying a week's provisions on their backs. But a great many men had fallen over and been instantly killed on the rocks below. The last victim, at the time I was there, was a Frenchman, who very foolishly set out to return to his camp from Downeyville after dark, having to pass this place on the way. He had taken the precaution to provide himself with a candle and some matches to light him round the Cape, but he was found dead on the rocks the next morning. End of chapter 13